Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hello there, fellow spooks. This is Emily Reidner, and I'm an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. This podcast is entirely listener-supported. If you'd like to hear more history and haunts every month, join me as an executive producer by checking out the Support the Show tab at historygoesbump.com. Thanks for listening. Ah, and remember, don't say I'll be right back. Stay spooky and don't tempt the spirits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 180th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we're doing a little something different. We're not covering the history and hauntings of a certain location or event or person. We're going to be looking at a pagan holiday. And that holiday is Imbolc. We're going to be joined shortly by a listener who also happens to be an executive producer, Roxy, and she suggested and helped us research this. Before we get into that, we want to send a big congratulations out to Sasha, who is going to be getting married. Very cool. Congratulations, Sasha. Yeah, she and her partner had already had a pagan ceremony, but they're going to make this one legal, Denise, so we know a little bit about that. So congratulations to her and Jonathan. It's going to be an October wedding An October 13th wedding, even. That's a good day. Which happens to be Friday the 13th. So a lot of fun for them. And they're going to be having it at a haunted location, which we will be featuring on this podcast at some point here in the future. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Noelle and Dave. And now this moment in oddity. A hypogeum is an underground temple or tomb and can sometimes reference a building built partially below ground that is carved from solid rock. Located in Paola, Malta, is the hypogeum of Halsafliani. It was discovered by accident in 1902 when workers cutting cisterns broke through the roof. Excavations revealed that it was three stories deep and dated back to 4000 B.C., There was a central chamber that had several small rounded cubicles carved into the walls. While they appeared to be something to bury bodies in, it is thought that living people would crawl into these spaces in the fetal position as part of a ritual. This chamber is thought to be a speaking chamber, and inside these small cubicles, echoes from the speaking chamber reverberate into a rhythm that is similar to the human heartbeat. The skeletons of 7,000 people were found. These skeletons have disappeared with only six skulls surviving to our modern time. The skulls are peculiar. They appear elongated and one of them is missing the joint that runs along the top of the skull. Photographs of the other skulls that were taken by researchers reveal other peculiarities. These included inexistent cranial knitting lines, abnormally developed temporal partitions, drilled and swollen occiputs as following recovered traumas. The hypogeum also contained a sacred well dedicated to the mother goddess, and there was a small statue featuring a sleeping goddess. 
There were inscriptions, one of which featured a cranium showing a very pronounced delisocephalus, which is the lengthened posterior part of the skull cap. It also was missing the median knitting, something considered impossible by doctors and researchers. While we have heard stories of bandaging or cradleboarding to cause a skull to elongate, it is believed that the skulls found in the hypogeum were from a group of people who had a natural genetic tendency for elongated skulls. And that certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history. In the month of February, on the 3rd in 1870, the 15th Amendment was ratified. This amendment ensured the right to vote to all males who were citizens of the United States. This opened the door to African-American males being able to vote and run for office. Female suffragists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton worked alongside black suffragists like Frederick Douglass to get the vote for all citizens, so this was a partial victory. It would take 50 more years for women to get the vote in America, although the territory of Utah did sign a law allowing women over the age of 21 to vote nine days after the ratification of the 15th Amendment. The Republican Party made the 15th Amendment a part of their Reconstruction efforts, and black voters helped the Republican Party come to power in the South. Hiram Rhodes Revels became the first African American to be elected as a U.S. Senator for the Republican Party representing Mississippi. A dozen other black men served in Congress during Reconstruction, and more than 600 served in state legislatures. There are a variety of pagan holidays, many of which other religions have borrowed from to establish their own holidays, Christmas and Easter being good examples of this meshing of customs. One pagan holiday that is not well known is Imbolc. This is a holiday with a variety of names depending on culture and location. The customs associated with it date back centuries. It falls on February 2nd, timing it between the deep darkness of the winter solstice and the coming of rebirth with the spring equinox. Well, we are joined on this episode by one of our listeners and also executive producers, Roxy. How are you, Roxy? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you two? We're doing great. Yep, very, very good. Well, what happened is we had done an episode on witches in America and Roxy had sent us an email and told us how much she'd enjoyed the show and then it suggested maybe we look at some of the pagan holidays that are out there. And she listed a few of them. And of course, you, we've all heard of summer solstice and, and things like that. But I'd never heard of the holiday that we are going to be featuring on this episode. And I said, hey, why don't we go ahead with that one? And it falls just perfectly on our calendar because it happens to be something that they celebrate on February 2nd. So thank you for suggesting it to us, Roxy. We appreciate that. Absolutely. And thank you for having me on the show. The first thing I wanted to ask you, we, we like to ask lots of people is, since you're listening to a show that features ghosts, what got you interested in the paranormal? I have always been very big into learning, not just what you learn in school, but, you know, books that you can pick up at the library on all various subjects. And I would say that that's the first time that I came across reading about ghosts was just, you know, reading ghost stories as a kid. And while the thought of these ghost stories kind of gave me the shivers a little bit, it's just, it's a very enticing subject. And I have had the opportunity to visit a couple of locations here in, in California that are considered to be haunted. I've had a little bit of personal experience myself, so I, I would say that I am also an open-minded skeptic, but it's, it's just such a fascinating subject to me, and it always has been. Now, when it comes to paganism and Wicca, how were you raised, and if it was not in those traditions, what caused you to want to investigate into those a little more further? Well, I was raised in a Catholic family. I went to parochial school, kindergarten through 12th grade, and yearly I had theology classes. So I was 
kind of indoctrinated in the church. I went through all of the various sacraments, uh, straight up through confirmation, which is typically when you're around a junior year in high school. Through that process, I also, I don't know if it was necessarily intentional, but something that I picked up from all of my theological courses was the fact that you can't just take everything just as you read it. Uh, you have to do your own discernment, your own processing. And I, as as time went on, I had this feeling like I wanted to believe what I had been told throughout these years, but that I really didn't feel it. So I, at that point, um, when I went off to college, especially and encountered people of different faiths, I found myself just in a place of feeling that everybody has their own path to enlightenment, to nirvana, to God, goddess, however you refer to them. And, and what matters is that you have that closeness, that you have that personal connection with the divine in some way. About four and a half years ago was when I really felt like taking the pagan path was something that was already a part of me. And from there, I've just been doing a lot of studying, a lot of introspection, a lot of reading. I've been active in uh, a small coven here in Southern California, and it's just been it's it's been a great path for me. And there's still so much for me to learn and to experience. And I'm just I feel really grateful and blessed that I have that opportunity to just continue on my path and to continue developing. Very good. That sounds like a really neat path that you've been on. And we're happy that you were able to find something that helps you feel fulfilled and keeps you learning. And learning is a great thing. Yes, ma'am. Well, Imbolc is what we're talking about today. And so many of us have heard of winter solstice and spring equinox, but I don't know that many of us that are not studying pagan uh, religious beliefs and such have ever heard of this. And it just kind of falls right in between your winter solstice and spring equinox. I'm imagining that this is something that dates back centuries. Yes, it actually it dates back several thousand years. And in order to get the full understanding of what Imbolc is, we actually have to look back to that time when there was no electricity, no plumbing, no irrigation, all of the luxuries that have become so common in our world today. At the time of year that Imbolc was celebrated, life was brutal. Uh, there was a very real risk with each passing year that someone might not make it through this season with the temperatures, the weather, dead and dormant crops. Your survival could very well depend on how much food you were able to stockpile and how much firewood you had and whether or not you had livestock to provide extra warmth because livestock actually you would typically bring them into the home at those times of years if you still had them. So they would so, actually bring like the, the cows and the sheep and everything right into their house? Yes. Uh, also because, I mean, it, even if someone had a separate housing area for those animals, you still have to tend to them during the winter. And you might not want to go outside with it being as cold and blustery and, and uncomfortable as it was. It would be risking your own health to do that. It was not uncommon to have the sheep, cattle, horses, whoever you had or whatever you had into your home. This is really timely for you to be talking about this because mm -hmm. I literally got a text message from my sister about an hour ago. They have a farm and she has sheep and one of the sheep was pregnant and she gave birth last night and they weren't ready for it. They thought it was coming in February and it was cold out and she had it outside and so it didn't make it. So it just is, even though we're in our modern era, this kind of stuff still happens. And then when you think about that, for my sister, it's a sad thing for their family to not have the baby sheep born, but it doesn't really reflect on their livelihood. But back then, that could have been a meal or what have you. Yes, absolutely. And funny that you should mention sheep giving birth. The root of the word imbolc, it's, it's derived from either imbolg or oimelk. I apologize if I'm pronouncing those incorrectly, <laughs> but they are words meaning of milk or in the belly. And around February, as you said, is when uh, the ewes, the female sheep, would be giving birth and they would 
be lactating for that reason. They would be providing the milk for for their for the lambs. So that is the origin of the word in bulk. Wow, look at how that just went together. Isn't that, you know, it's one of those synchronicities that happens all the time around here. Exactly. It's awesome. Now, it wasn't just the word that you'd use there, I believe, is Gaelic. They weren't the only ones that really were celebrating this, though. I think I'd read somewhere that the Romans and the Egyptians all had things that kind of were similar to Imbolc. Y- Yes, uh, the Romans celebrated Lupercalia, which was associated with the god Pan, if I'm not mistaken. Um, my knowledge here is a little bit more scant, but it was a celebration of new life beginning. The The root of the Imbolc celebration is that the winter is coming to an end. The snow is starting to thaw the, and life is starting to resume its process and new life is coming into the world. So the Romans also felt that same way and would celebrate in a similar fashion, except they would, of course, be worshiping with different gods. There's also um, a celebration of uh, Februaria, which, of course, February makes perfect sense. <laughs> and, and I believe that that was more associated with the goddess Juno, who you might know as Hera from Greek mythology. It's associated with fertility, with marriage. And, and so she was also a highly celebrated goddess at this time of year for those reasons. Well, I really like Roman and Greek mythology, so I jumped down that rabbit hole, as I like to do. And I had seen the information on Lupercalia, and basically this was something that was held on February 15th, so the timing was pretty close. A goat would be sacrificed and a scourge made of its hide. Then men would run through the city and hit people with the bits of goat hide. (laughs) If you were one of the people hit with the goat hide, you would consider it to be good luck. This is one of the few Roman celebrations that does not have a temple or a deity that's associated with this custom. So it's, I guess, rogue, which would be a guy running through the city with a goat hide sounds kind of rogue. And this one basically focuses on the founding of the city of Rome. And Lupercale was the cave where the she-wolf suckled the founders of Rome, which were the Thames, Romulus, and Remus. So I thought that was really interesting. Also, I should mention uh, Chinese New Year is coming up, too, at around the same time. So that's all those synchronicities. (laughs) Yeah, they all definitely have a a kind of connection. So you know that dating way back to when we all lived closer to each other at one time, this was obviously something that is rooted in that and has just been taken out to the different corners of the world and changed according to whatever customs were in that particular place. Well, and the ancient Egyptians also celebrate... Yeah, I'd seen something about... Um, the Feast of Nut or the fe- Feast of Nut or something? Yeah, Nut, whose birthday actually fell on February 2nd on the Gregorian calendar. It was in the Book of the Dead. I guess Nut was the mother figure to the sun god Ra, and she yeah. took on the form of a scarab beetle or something. Now, I know that there is some other goddess that is connected to Embolc. And that would be Bridget. There are a variety of pronunciations and spellings. I prefer B as in uh, bump, R, I, G as in ghost, I, D as in Dan. That's how I typically spell it if I'm referring to her. But there's also breed, which is spelled like the word bride, Bridget with a T at the end. And I have not heard of any incorrect pronunciations, uh, unless you're saying like, Brigid or something like that, but Bridget typically you can't go wrong. <laughs> okay, that's what I would have. That's what I. It kind of looked like Bridget to me. Now, as we know, when Christianity came around, it started to pull a lot of people away from paganism. But the people who held to a lot of the pagan customs didn't want to give up some of their rituals, and so that's how we've incorporated a lot of those into, say, Christmas. We've talked about the different things that are similar, or Easter's kind of similar, and it seems like with Imbolc, this has the same kind of thing because. It's February 2nd. They call it Candlemas or something in Ireland, but it really goes back to this goddess and that they were trying to kind of hold on to some of their customs in regards to her. Yes, absolutely. Brigid became a figure in the Christian tradition when uh, when there was an attempt to convert the the Celts, the, the people of, of Ireland. And she became actually a, a figure in the birth story of Jesus Christ. Uh, she in There's a traditional Irish tale in which Bridget is the midwife of Jesus Christ, hmm. that she was actually there at his birth. Interesting. Uh, 
Yes, it is very interesting. And while I haven't read any actual biblical accounts that point to that as what happened, I could see it as an inspirational tale for the Celts who are hesitant to be open to a different religion coming in and taking over. I, I don't like to say it that way, but it, it that is kind of what happened. <laughs> now, I know the Irish seer is a kind of goddess, and basically she's taken on sainthood when it comes to the Christian part. But for you guys in paganism, you look at her in a different way. Is that correct? Yes, she is a central figure in the Celtic pantheon. She is often seen as a triple goddess. And when I say triple goddess, that means that she takes on the guises of it that are the the three primary versions of a goddess as seen in the in the Wicca tradition and and in other pagan traditions uh there's the maiden who uh, represents abundant opportunity and youth there's the mother who represents fertility and a nurturing aspect of the goddess and then there is the crone who is seen as the wise advisor as the counselor also, uh, that's based upon things that I've read, but that is also based upon my own experiences with those versions of the deity. Other people might have different experiences with her in, in a variety of ways. So how does she get incorporated into the practice of Imbolc? Is there, I mean, I don't know if you guys use statuary or if there's some other way that you represent her. Traditionally, there were some ways that people would honor her at Imbolc and, and that are still used commonly to this day. There is a tradition of creating a, a cross, the Bridged Cross, which kind of looks like a sun spiral out of uh, from weaving corn uh, rushes, reeds, whatever you have available. Uh, of braiding those together, and then some will hang them over the inside of the front door as a request for Bridget's protection and blessing. There was also a practice of laying a flat bit of ashes by the hearth on Imbolc Eve. And if those ashes were disturbed when you woke up in the morning, that would mean that you had Bridget's blessing. If they were not disturbed, then that would mean that Bridget did not pass through your house and did not bless your house. There's also another practice that I know of where you would take a ribbon or a length of cord and put it on the windowsill at night or sometimes at your threshold. And if the ribbon was longer in the morning, that would mean that Bridget had stopped by and given you her blessing. Wow. So that's like you could look at the ashes and say, well, maybe have rats. <laughs> yes, that too. <laughs> but with the ribbon, now that is interesting that it would end up getting longer or the cord would be longer. So that's not something that could just happen on its own. No. Right. That is a certainly a mystery, a magical mystery, you might say. <laughs> Very interesting. Would they say like, I don't know, would they recite some kind of a prayer to let her know that they were putting this out for her? I would not be surprised at all if there were candles lit in her honor, if blessings and prayers were, were made. Bridget is also closely associated with livestock. So by taking care of, of your animals, I personally am of the opinion that all acts of love are in the goddess's favor. So I would say that taking care of your animals in a kind and loving way would also be an act of worship. So for you yourself, let's, uh, I'll just ask when it comes to, because they call it like February 2nd would be a Sabbat. So it would be basically a Sabbath for your coven or maybe just for you personally. What kind of rituals do you go through in order to observe that? There are a variety of rituals. I have participated in one over the past year, which I'll be happy to go into in just a moment. A friend of mine hosted an in-bulk ritual two years ago that was very momentous for her. And it also kind of a replication, I want to say, of how Bridget is worshipped in Ireland, how she was worshipped in the past. Bridget is one of her guises, one of her forms that she takes is the Lady of the Forge and of the Fire. She is known as a fire goddess and as fire can both create and destroy. When a forest is burned down, while it's sad to see that trees have lost their lives, it also makes the soil ready for the next growth of healthy plants and trees that are going to be there. You can see that fire in, can be both a creator-destroyer in that aspect. Bridget had an eternal flame lit at Kildare, 
which is one of her holy places in Ireland. And that flame burned from about 500 before Common Era or BC up until the 1600s when King Henry VIII declared it a pagan shrine and had it extinguished. For those years, 19 sisters of Brigid would each take one day and night to watch the flame, to tend it, to make sure that it didn't go out. And then on the 20th night, Bridget would take her watch. And my friend two years ago coordinated doing the same thing for, uh, except it was consolidated into just a 24-hour circuit rather than over 20 days. And that was a very spiritual experience for her. That's a long run to keep an eternal flame going like they did. How heartbreaking to have it be put out. Yes, and it was actually relit uh, in 1993 by the Brigidine Order, who are a group of, of Catholic nuns, and they now maintain a presence at Kildare. They have an abbey there, and they keep the flame going now. Well, and I saw that, I think it's at that location that they will tie ribbons and other things to the trees that are near there. Yes, people can leave offerings for Bridget by tying ribbons in trees. Generally, they don't encourage leaving a whole lot of food or anything that is going to remain there or possibly be uh, harmful to the environment. But absolutely, they, they're called, the ribbons are called clouties. And you can leave those tied to a tree near the, near the well, which is also a healing spot for Bridget. Or you can leave it over near the flame as long as it's not too close and doesn't burn up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want to set things on fire because we like rebirth and everything, but sometimes you don't want that kind of rebirth. Exactly. Especially too close to the house. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you, I know you wanted to wait a little bit, but did you want to tell us a little bit about what, what process you go through for your ritual? Oh, yes, I would love to. So this past year, my coven and I had a in bulk ritual that was very focused on communicating with the various aspects of Bridget. And I can list those for you now, the ones that we used in our ritual. Uh, we talked to Bridget the Bard, who represents inspiration, uh, work in the arts and craftsmanship. Bridget the Midwife, the caregiver, the protectress of the home, as well as nurturing new life into the world. There's Bridget the O-Queen, who is the goddess of sacrifice. There's the Lady of the Sacred Well. She's there to promote healing, to promote introspection. There is the Warrior Queen aspect of Bridget. And then lastly, we also worked with the Lady of the Forge, uh, who I had mentioned, the goddess of the eternal flame. So do they look at these as different parts of her personality or are these considered distinct individuals? These are different parts of her personality, at least with how, uh, I, how I view it. Now, I do know that in, in some Celtic practices, she was actually seen as three separate goddesses at one point. I don't think that there was that much division into we've got six that we worked with here. So I, I, but I, I haven't seen in Celtic tradition, if those are really six different uh, women, six different goddesses, I view them all as one. <laughs> so a little bit like the Christian idea of the Trinity. Exactly. Okay. Well, you know, and I've seen her referred to as triune. It's different faces of the same person and you react to them in different ways. Just as, uh, you know, God the Father, we react to different than we do the Son, than we do the Holy Ghost. Yeah. So th that helps us to understand that too. That makes sense. Yes. So in our actual ritual, we offered it as an opportunity for various people in that we are friends with that are close family members to go through and for lack of a better term, kind of use it as a therapy session um, to really explore problems that you might be having goals that you want to make things that you want to do away with from your life. And each person that went through the circle that we created would spend five to 10 minutes with each aspect of Bridget and, and just embrace the things that she represented and actually get a chance to talk with her about all of uh, their troubles, the good things, the bad things, what they wanted to focus on. And uh, the people that I spoke with after the ritual came away with a very positive experience is what I heard overall. And in, some people felt like it really changed them for the good. Now, was this something that you did while other people were observing or was it more like a vision quest where you went like into solitude and kind of went through that process on your own and then came back to the group? It was 
more of a one on, I would say it was a one on one experience, because I should clarify that there are six of us in this in this group of women that work together magically. And each of us represented one of the different aspects of Bridget. So we would have our guests would would walk through to one area of the tent, and they would sit down with one of us who was there as Bridget the Bard. And after they had determined that they were ready to move on to the next aspect, they would go talk to Bridget, the goddess of the oak. And then they would move on to the lady of the forge. And each of us had a different area that was, we had an altar that was to that specific aspect of Bridget. And it was almost like six different rituals, very short rituals, but each of them had a, a different, I guess, goal. Well, that's interesting that you would do it that way because that gives them more of a hands-on feel to having something happen rather than, you know, sometimes for us as Christians, when we say a prayer, you're not sure, did I just pray to the wall? Did it bounce off the ceiling? So it is <laughs> kind of nice to have somebody who's like actually there when you're doing something to get some kind of a, a back and forth going there, which is what I would think would help them to feel like you said, that it helped to lift whatever was troubling them or they felt like it was a benefit to their life. They had changed in some way. Yes. And it was a very personal experience for whoever went through. And we did our best to make sure that each person got to have the experience that they were really meant to have by being there and that they didn't feel judged in any way. It was it. I was representing the lady of the sacred well. So I was really there as not so much a counselor, but really just to hold a safe space for whoever needed to as they were coming to the well for healing. So I was just there as a quiet presence. If I felt inspired to say something to somebody, I would. But for the most part, I was really just there trying to make it a safe, warm environment. Now, with the celebration, is it like ranked kind of in order or is like with importance to like the winter winter solstice and things like that? Or is it like, does everybody um, participate in it? Imbolc is not one of the most highly recognized of the holidays. And we did discuss that as it's, it's not one that people hear about most often. But for, for me personally, it feels like the new year. It feels like it's time to start those new goals that you've had in mind. It's time to take the year by storm and do the best that you can with it. I know that the women that I work with, that is also a feeling that they get from this holiday. So kind of a springboard into the new year to, to just kind of get Absolutely. away from the old and then continue on with the new. Yes, because we're coming out of uh, the winter solstice, which is also known as Yule. That's on December 21st, on or around. Typically, with each of these holidays, there's like a three-day time span where one might celebrate it. For example, for, for Imbolc, somebody might celebrate it on February 1st, while somebody else celebrates it on February 3rd. So Yule is the darkest night of the year. It's typically when everybody is huddled indoors away from the cold, and it's about having the light shine from within. It's really about keeping, it's keeping warm on a spiritual level. It's, it's, you know, banding together with the people that you care about most just to enjoy a nice evening together. It's a very quiet, uh, very peaceful holiday to me. And that's how I've seen it celebrated by a variety of individuals is just coming together and just quietly celebrating. So you're coming out of a time where it's cold, there's not a whole lot of activity, people are kind of conserving their energy and you're coming into the time of year where energetically all around you the earth is coming back to life and especially a few thousand years back up in the area of Ireland and in other parts of Europe as we discussed and and into Asia and Africa at this time of year in early February things really were starting to warm up and come back to life. That's a really good visual because if you think as you said, it's the darkest time when you're looking at the winter solstice because we have the longest nights during that time. So it is almost like you're watching the light just start to come in. And so yes. it is being represented with this where it's just a little bit of light escaping. And kind of like how you said that the Chinese New Year is about the same time. So it kind of coincides with that, too. Yes, it's amazing all of the synchronicities in, in, in life. <laughs> I would be happy to share a couple of traditional tales from frigid folklore, if you like. Oh, that'd be oh, awesome. That'd be fun. 
Okay. These are stories that I'm going to be reading to you. There are a couple of short ones, and I uh, got them from a book called Bridget History, Mystery, and Magic of the Celtic Goddess, and it is a book by Courtney Weber. Uh, Here's the first story. One day, Bridget went to the bishop to ask for a plot of land on which to build her abbey at which she would feed the poor, give shelter, and educate the young. The bishop refused, but still she asked again and again. Finally, the bishop agreed to grant her the land, but only so much as her cloak would cover, sneering in spite of his own cleverness, but his grin was not for long. Bridget called to her two sisters, and the three of them began to unfold her green cloak. Fold after fold, The cloak stretched and stretched until it covered so much land that the bishop could not see the end of it. He pleaded for her to stop, lest she cover all of Ireland, and granted her the space to build the abbey. Oh, that's very interesting. And to think, I mean, because you're talking, this isn't just a a small little person. She's able to cover all of Ireland. Yes, and that's also how how far-reaching her her influence is. And and beyond that, she is uh, in the Catholic tradition she is viewed as the patroness of ireland actually (laughs) which is interesting that her cloak was green which is the color of ireland and also like the green hills of ireland and stuff so it's, it's fun that it was green too yes absolutely and the second story that i have here actually touches on her aspect as the lady of the healing well two lepers came to visit bridget at her sacred well in kildare and asked for healing She agreed, instructing them to bathe one another in the well until their skin healed. However, after one was healed, he refused to bathe the other as the sight of his former ailment disgusted him. He refused to touch his friend to bestow the healing he had just received. Witnessing the unkind act, Bridget was so angry that her fury caused his ailment to return. She wrapped her green mantle around the other and healed him completely. Wow. It, what's interesting about this is talking about leprosy. Was that something, and I don't know if you even know this, is that, was that a common ailment around there? I'm afraid I do not know if it was common, but it is very interesting because there, in the Bible there's uh, <laughs> stories about Jesus Christ uh, curing leprosy. Yeah. So I was like, wow, that almost goes hand in hand with that. Because when you were saying that, I was like, that reminds me of the lepers that would be healed. And back in the day, though, leprosy could be any form of skin disease. It wasn't just leprosy as the disease that we know it today. That's true. Right, because the the medical knowledge wasn't quite there where one would be able to see uh, one type of skin ailment as something else and one and another as leprosy. If you saw a bunch of skin ailments, they were all leprosy. I want to ask you, because when we talk about Wicca and paganism, and then sometimes you look over at Satanism, these are all different things. And usually when we look at Wicca, we see that as more of a positive form of magic. And then, of course, there's black magic out there. How do you guys, do you recognize such a thing as black magic? And do you react to it in any way if you do recognize it? I typically refer to what one might call black magic as baneful magic or harmful, meaning that it could potentially cause harm to yourself or to another. And then there is white magic, which is very positive, uh, which exists to help another or to help yourself to heal another. However, even though baneful magic exists, a a lot of witches typically would say that they practice gray magic. I've heard that used, uh, that term used multiple times. And when, when I say gray magic, that means that they're trying, trying to balance the energies of the universe. And that doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing any magic to cause harm to another, but they might use magic to protect themselves from a harmful individual. And I don't see that as baneful or black magic. I see that as protective measures that you might feel like you need to take if a circumstance is getting a little too hinky for you. Sure. I can I can see what you're saying there. I kind of look at black magic as being something that would be putting curses on people. So mm-hmm. it would be more like doing a counter curse. And some people may see that as more of a gray type of magic than a white magic yeah. because there's cursing involved, but it's to counter it. 
Yes, absolutely. And that I have, as far as I know, I've never been hexed. <laughs> but uh, I know that if I that if I felt like there was there was somebody that was putting negative energy or negative magic towards me that I would I would certainly respond, I would defend myself, but I would not act out, I would not push any negative magic back at them. It, it just it especially when you consider the law of karma or the law of threefold, where if you if you put an energy out into the world, it's going to come back at you three times that strength. And if you're looking at it as self-defense, though, is that the only way that could come back to you threefold would be if you were trying to harm somebody else, and then they were self-defending themselves three times as much. So because what you're saying, I see very much as self-defense, just like with me with the martial arts, is that yes. I'm not I'm the most safe person to be around ever until you threaten me or my family, and then all bets are off, kind of that kind of thing. And But it would only be in a defense type thing, like what you're talking about. I wouldn't go out and just, you know, use the techniques and the knowledge that I have to hurt somebody. But if they try to hurt my family, those techniques Absolutely. are going to come in very, very useful. Yes, I agree with you 100%. I also believe that intention means a lot too, especially when it comes to magic. If you have prepared a spell and you feel like you've memorized it and you go to perform it and you're trying to say these words perfectly right, but then you get dyslexic on a word and switch it around. I don't feel like, oh, I screwed it up. I'm not going to, I'm not, this isn't going to work out how I wanted it to. It's really the intention behind it. It's the meaning behind it. If I put a lot of love and care into a spell work or a ritual and I trip up just a little bit, I don't see it as the end of the world. It's, it really is about the energy that you put into it. And the same goes for if you're casting that self-defense magic. If your intention is really to just protect yourself and your loved ones, then I don't see any way in how that could come back harmfully to you. I agree. It's more like a force field that you're putting up around yourself. Yes. Let me ask you this, because I really don't know. When we say the word pagan, it seems like it's kind of an umbrella term for a lot of different things. Is there a lot of different belief systems that fall underneath that pagan umbrella? Absolutely. The one that is most frequently recognized, as we've discussed, is Wicca. And if I am explaining to a friend for the first time that I practice witchcraft, that is typically the term I'll use because it's the one they recognize. I classify myself as an eclectic pagan witch, meaning that I pull my workings, my, my rituals, my spells from different influences uh, within the pagan umbrella. There is also under that under that umbrella, we have there's the Druids who uh, there are a few different organizations that exist within the world that practice Druidry. And that is based on how the Celts would practice their faith. Uh, it has certainly been modernized, but they do especially honor that specific tradition. A couple of those organizations are ADF. Uh, there's a Gaelic term, I think it's pronounced Andriok Fain, and I think it means a Druid fellowship. There's also Obod, which is the order of bards, ovates, and druids. And they celebrate differently, but they both take their origin from the Druid practice in the British Isles. There are a variety of celebrations for those different pantheons that we discussed. Somebody that works with the Norse gods might call themselves Asatru is the is the term for it. It's A, S as in Sam, A, T as in Tom, R, U. And they also refer to themselves as heathens. And so they've got, uh, they have their own practices that I'm afraid I'm not that up on in terms of knowledge yet, but they work mostly with the Norse pantheon. There are also a variety of groups within Wicca. There's Gardnerian tradition, which was started by Gerald Gardner, who started with the Wiccan tradition in general. But he had his own version of it that became the Gardnerian tradition. There's the Dianic tradition. 
There are many more beyond that. And there are still people who call themselves pagan who are creating their own traditions to this day. It is very much a a personal path, no matter which path you take. Well, I would have to say that the Dianic tradition is definitely my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) I can see why. (laughs) Well, what's interesting is when you were describing this, all I could think of was a lot of people say, I'm a Christian, but then it's what denomination are you? So it's kind of looking at it in a similar way. They all have their own different rituals and, and ways that they conduct their services or what they believe. So very similar. Right. Yes. And it's been kind of a a nice, warm, familiar thing coming out of Mm -hmm. Catholicism is that a Catholic church that it whenever you go to church, they practice rituals. Mm -hmm. There are specific things that have to be on the altar. There are specific words to be said. There's the uh, transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's it's, uh, amazing. And it's and it's interesting to think about who influenced whom. (laughs) Yeah, I was just thinking when you pull back from everything and look at it from afar, it's like, look at how similar everything just really is, whether it's the stories they tell, the rituals they do, all very similar. It's kind of how you take it forward and practice it, because every religion could come across as a a dark or a bad thing if that's the way you want to conduct yourself. Yes. Uh, And I believe 100%, as I said earlier, that we each have our own path to the divine. We each have our own relationship. It's really in in how we practice it. And having that personal connection, to me, that's that's the heart of spirituality and religion. And just quickly, I wanted to ask you when it comes to paganism, when you guys look at things like ghosts and spirits, how do they define those? Or how do they look at them? I like to ask that when I hear people who come from different religious beliefs is how those are treated in that particular belief system. Well, this is another one where I can I can kind of I can speak from experience. I assisted a friend of mine who has years more experience in this tradition than I do. I helped her with a house cleansing. And when we first walked into the home that we were going to be uh, that we were going to be cleansing, we had to find out if it was what sort of spirit we were dealing with. I classify benevolent spirits. Those those are spirits, possibly ancestor spirits, but not necessarily that are really there as a positive presence. They're there to help you. They're just, they're, they're hanging around because this is their home. This is where they feel comfortable and they're not there to cause any harm whatsoever. Neutral spirits, they also might hang around and they're not there for good or for bad. It's really just stuck energy, I guess, is a way to think of it, is that they're just present there because they are. And then there are harmful spirits, harmful energies, and uh, they really are there to cause a ruckus. And those are ones that it wouldn't be a bad idea to sage the entire house. <laughs> that is um, very interesting. Yes. And that is that comes from, this is kind of my, my personal experience, as well as some books that I've read on the subject, uh, there are typically those those classifications that I have read about, and it's something that I've experienced. Well, Roxy, we want to thank you so much. This has been really interesting and educational because clearly we had no idea about this particular holiday, and I've never really had the chance to sit down and talk to somebody who has pagan beliefs to just kind of pick their brains about some of that. Yes, it was Absolutely. very, very interesting. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on the show. And I'm always happy to help out in any way I can. And, you know, in future, if if there are any other topics that you'd like to discuss, I am absolutely happy to help out. Well, very good. We look forward to talking to you in the future. I'm sure we definitely will. And we'll have an opportunity to do that again. I will be probably talking to you again soon. Bye-bye. 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 Well, that was great talking to Roxy about that. That was uh, definitely an education. We learned a lot. Yes, we did. On our next episode, we're going to be featuring a location, Denise, in a country that you are going to be in very shortly. And actually, when this episode goes up, you will be leaving for Ireland. We're going to be doing Loftus Hall on the next episode. Super, super cool. Denise, what did you think of the intro by Emily Reitner? Once again, it was another great executive producer bumper. I've really been enjoying them, so keep them coming. 
We would love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we did get an email from Kim. She said, hi, Diane and Denise. Just wanted to say thank you for all that you do for both your podcast community and the HGB crew on Facebook. I started listening to you early this summer during a particularly rough patch. It seems like a lot of the crew find you through other podcasts, but I was lucky enough to find you all while mindlessly searching iTunes for podcasts to fill up my day. The energy and the way you bounce off each other really brings a wonderful feeling and uniqueness to your work. It's also a blessing that you are still so in touch with your listeners. I can't say how many times I've personally needed something good and happy in my day, and your podcasts have been that. It is also educational to boot, so a true win all around. And then she also sent us a location suggestion, which we will be doing later on, probably into next year. We're going to be doing it for Holocaust Remembrance Day. So I think people can probably figure out what we're going to look at there. We haven't really wanted to touch the concentration camps. It's such a difficult subject to get into and hard to make sure that you do it in a respectful way when you're doing a podcast that's trying to be entertaining. But I think, Denise, you and I are going to be able to to give this a really good, respectful go of it. And I think it's so important that we talk about this because it's getting a little lost out there. I don't know how much they talk about it in schools anymore. And we know that a lot of the people who went through those concentration camps and managed to survive a lot of them are not around anymore and pretty soon we won't have any more of them around and we don't want that to get lost. You and I have both known people who still bore the tattoos from their time in those camps. I'm with you, Diane, that I want very much to keep the memory of all those lives lost um, with us. So thank you for that email and suggestion, Kim. And we always love to hear from you guys that we've brought a little bit of light into your darkness, even though we're talking about dark subjects. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow we have a way of doing that, I guess, Denise. We also heard from Jenny, aka Jello Rivera over on Instagram. Oh my God, I love your podcast. I literally can go through five episodes in one sitting. Of course, because the work I do affords me such opportunity that taking advantage of it and listening is amazing. Just thought I should share. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. We also have a review to share. This one is from Kay Cummins, Hawaii Five Stars. Just listened to your island podcast. I was there in December 1991 for the 50th anniversary and really wish I could go back. Your podcast brought back fond memories and is one of my favorites. I work in a maximum security prison called The Castle on the Cumberland and tell everyone about your podcast. Thank you and keep up the awesome work. Well, thank you so much for sharing us with everybody. And that's some tough work you're doing there. So thank you for for doing that kind of work. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We want to welcome new executive producer, Julie Burton. Thanks. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.